You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, the Crown Plaza Hotel, Grand Hall, and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the law firm of Bose, McKinney, and Evans, and the Bose Public Affairs Group, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You can find all your sales and rental equipment needs at McAllister.com. And we are pleased to announce our podcast is now a member of the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You can find Leaders and Legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guests today are Secret Service legend Clint Hill and his co-author and a journalist and author in her own right who's written a very well-received biography of Betty Ford. Lisa McCubbin, thank you both very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much. First, Mr. Hill, let me thank you for your service, not only for the Secret Service, but also in the United States military. Thank you. Appreciate that. Mr. Hill was a, born in 1932 and is a North Dakota. We haven't had many people from North Dakota on the podcast yet. Not that we're not open-minded. There aren't many people in North Dakota. (laughs) (laughs) And he graduated from college, wanted to be a history teacher, which, of course, we love here on the Leaders and Legends podcast, and was drafted in the United States Army, and eventually became not only a special agent in the Army Counterintelligence Corps, but a member of the Secret Service. Started in 1958, started in Denver, if my notes are correct, and then... Uh, your first assignment, personal assignment, perhaps, was guarding President Eisenhower's mother-in-law. Is that right? That's correct. I was in the Denver field office of the U.S. Secret Service. And Mrs. Eisenhower, Mamie Dowd Eisenhower's mother, lived in Denver. Her name was Elvira Dowd. And she was elderly and not too well. And so President Eisenhower was concerned about her and asked that we have an agent in her house from seven at night until seven in the morning. And so we would change off the agents. I was the junior agent for a while there at that time. And so I was there more than anybody else, probably. Uh, And we would spend uh, from seven to 11. One agent would be there and then from 11 at night until seven in the morning another agent would be there. And we just stood there. We were in the house, in the living room, or down in the sitting room where Eisenhower kept all his books, all of his, he loved to read Westerns, and they all ended up there in the Dowd basement in their family room. So we had plenty of reading material to look at, <laughs> all from Eisenhower. And uh, Mrs. Eisenhower would come out there frequently, it's meet with her mother, usually bring one of her sisters with her, Mike, and uh, so we got to know the entire family 
And later on, in about 1960, I believe it was, uh, Mrs. Dow died. At that time, I was at the White House, in the White House detail, but we went out there for the funeral. President and Mrs. Eisenhower, the funeral part of it was in the house there at, on Lafayette Street in Denver. And, uh, as the funeral was starting, Mrs. Eisenhower came out and picked out those of us who were there who had been with her mother over the years and asked mm -hmm. us to join the family. And I thought that was exceptional. And uh, we were very uh, glad to do that. Lisa, your background, I want to ask about being in the presence of Dwight Eisenhower. I've been to the Eisenhower farm in Gettysburg, mm -hmm. and it's one of the most unbelievable time capsule locations I've ever been to in my entire life. Like they still have the playing cards and they still have the avocado, the green phones. It's, it's amazing how well that's preserved. Lisa, you started out in journalism. That was your first love. Uh, yeah, I've had a lot of uh, careers, actually. But um, uh, yeah, I was a um, I was a television news anchor and live reporter um, in Bakersfield, California for a number of years. And then I um, moved overseas to Saudi Arabia. And um, they didn't have many journalist jobs in Saudi Arabia when I was there. So um, that's when I really started writing. And I was a foreign correspondent. Um, I was in Saudi Arabia on 9-11. So um, that was oh. kind of my, my writing background. And, um, and yeah, then I realized I, I preferred working in my pajamas. And so then I started writing books. <laughs> I should note for the Leaders and Legends audience, she is not in her pajamas for this interview. <laughs> what was it like being in Saudi Arabia on 9-11? Um, you know, it was very surreal. Um, I had young children at the time, and I, I really tried to shield them from any of the television coverage because I knew they were going to have to get on a plane, you know, to mm -hmm. return home. Um, our family was very concerned about us, but we were concerned about um, our family in the States. And then, uh, you know, once it was revealed that it was Saudis that were, you know, among uh, the terrorists, the hijackers, uh, then it got kind of, uh, dicey over in Saudi Arabia. And, um, we had to be very cautious about going out and about, and, um, we're concerned for our own safety at times, but, um, it was a fascinating experience. Oh, I can only imagine. We had one of our uh, leaders and legends podcast guests, a former governor of Indiana, Mitch Daniels, who was working in the Bush, he's now the president of Purdue University, but he's working in the Bush White House as budget director. And he had a, a fascinating story about being that close to the White House on that day and just how everything changed. Like the people who thought they had power in terms of like the officials become the Secret Service and the security people then have all the power. Yes. <laughs> are you familiar? Are you familiar with that, Clint? I am. I'm familiar, very familiar with that. Yeah. I, Things can change in an instant, and they do. And uh, it's we have to be, we in the Secret Service have to be prepared for that type of event, just in case. And uh, so we plan way ahead and try and cross all the T's, dot all the I's, make sure there are no room for error, and uh, do the best job we can. And uh, but it's uh, it's a challenge, but it's an honor too. How would you describe working for, working with 
uh, President Eisenhower, five-star general, larger than life, probably the most famous American other than Elvis in the 1950s. Was it hard to look at him as anything other than the man who led the Allies on D-Day and beyond? Well, I suppose that was always in the back of my mind or our minds. But he was a wonderful man to work with. He was very cooperative. He was, uh, you know, he had such a long military experience, which made it much easier because he, we gave him a schedule and said, uh, we want, we have to leave here at nine o'clock tomorrow morning. He would be in the car ready to go at 8.59.30. You know, I mean, you could just count on it. You didn't have to worry about that. And he wasn't a politician by any sense of it. Uh, where he did not like to go into crowds. It, it wasn't a, that type of politician. So that made it much easier for us and much safer for him. It was a pleasure to work with him. Would it be fair to say that he was in somewhat the opposite of another president for whom you were responsible, and that's Lyndon Johnson? Well, only in some respects, you know. All the presidents I worked with, all five, Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon, and Ford, the one thing they had in common was a large ego because that's the only reason they became president, pretty much. Eisenhower's ego was not as large as some, and Ford's ego was not as large as some. But uh, he and Ike, uh, or Eisenhower and Johnson would differ in a lot of ways. Uh, Johnson was a real, wanted to go into a crowd, wanted to kiss the babies and shake the hands, and Eisenhower would stand back and be rather aloof and pay his respects to people because he honored them, but uh, he didn't like to really mix like other politicians have. Kennedy liked to mix too. He liked to go into crowds. Uh, Johnson and Ike, or uh, Nixon in some respects too. Uh, but uh, Eisenhower was different in that respect. Easier. Mamie Eisenhower said after Ike's death that she wasn't sure she ever really knew him. Wasn't sure that anyone ever did. Well, that perhaps is true. Uh, she, she never called him Mr. President. She always called him General. Whenever she referred to him with us, it was the General. Uh, I thought that was rather interesting. I used to work for an Indianapolis mayor named Greg Ballard, who retired after 23 years in the Marine Corps as a lieutenant colonel, and I always called him Colonel. And sure. <laughs> he and I were the only ones in the room who like knew I was talking to him. <laughs> when I when I mentioned the Johnson Eisenhower comparison, uh, what I was thinking of specifically, you mentioned Eisenhower really wasn't a politician, whereas Johnson, I think everyone has pretty much agreed, historians and people who worked for him was the consummate politician, enjoyed it, and at the same time, uh, I read an interesting article about you in your last book where it talks about how unpredictable Lyndon Johnson was. That was really I was trying to get at with. Hey, yeah. we're, let's let's just go see the Pope, or well, hey, let's just go do this. What was it like in that instance? Well, that made it much more difficult, but he was that way. And one of the reasons I think he was that way is he thought that would protect him in some manner. Nobody else would know what he was going to do. I mean, oftentimes when we were at the LBG Ranch down in Texas, he would all of a sudden come out of the house, head for either the helicopter or a jet star that we had standing by right there at the ranch. And next thing we knew, we were on our way to 
uh, Indianapolis or Beaumont, Texas, or someplace, and we had to really scurry with the communications to get people in line, the cars set up, and everything else, so that when we got there, we, they were ready to take care of. So it was a real challenge with uh, Johnson. Well, we're going to talk about uh, respectfully <laughs> at, uh, talk about and ask about uh, the events in Dallas in November of '63, but Johnson's behavior coming so close after the assassination of John F. Kennedy, you, did you just get the sense that he just didn't care? Like he didn't feel that he was less safe because of what happened then? Well, he cared a lot about his safety, a great deal. Uh, he just had that belief that if he didn't tell anybody what he was going to do, they couldn't plan ahead mm. to hurt him. And so he loved not to be tell anybody. I mean, we went on a world around the world trip, and the only two people he really confided in were the pilot and <laughs> Jack Valenti. Oh, Jack Valenti, yeah. Yeah, and the only reason he confided in Valenti was that President Johnson wanted to see the Pope when we went through Rome, and Valenti had a contact, and so he had to deal with Valenti in order to set that up. But it was a, that was a real challenge. You're listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. We're talking to Lisa McCubbin and her co-author on several terrific books, and that is retired Secret Service agent Clint Hill. Together, they have written the books Mrs. Kennedy and Me, which came out in 2012, Five Days in November, which came out in 2013, Five Presidents, which came out in 2013. 16. I actually have to say that the five days in November book, which we'll discuss in a minute, I read the entire thing sitting in a Barnes and Noble one day about five or six years ago. I picked it up, sat down at the table and read the entire book while uh, eating multiple cookies and drinking coffee or tea, whatever I had, because it was so terrific. And we'll post the link uh, to get these books. And if you love contemporary American history and inside accounts of what happened on momentous days and with great people, please pick up these books. You continued on with the presidential detail after the Eisenhower administration and worked for the Kennedy family, specifically for Mrs. Kennedy. Was that an assignment that you enjoyed, that you wanted? Absolutely not. I was with Eisenhower and the day after the election in 1960, we went to Augusta, Georgia, so he could relax and play some golf. And after the first round of golf, my supervisor came to me and said, Clint, he said, they want you to go back to Washington. They want you to see the chief of the Secret Service tomorrow. They have something planned for you. And I had no idea what they had in mind. So I flew back to Washington, went in that next day to see the chief, and after about a 90-minute interview with he and members of his staff, they decided uh, that I was going to be the one to work with Mrs. John F. Kennedy, Jacqueline Kennedy. I was really upset, disappointed, angry, as a matter of fact, because I didn't want that kind of job. I had witnessed how the agents, uh, what things that they did when they were with Mrs. Eisenhower, always Bess Truman. And they didn't do anything except, you know, take her to lunch, watch Canasta games, <laughs> go to fashion shows. I didn't want any part of that. I wanted to be where the action was 
And that was always where the president in the past had been. But as the way it turned out, because Mrs. Kennedy was so different, I was busier than I ever had been traveling around the world, uh, never a dull moment. And it was really one of the best assignments I could have ever had. Do you get the sense that it was the President Kennedy and Jacqueline Kennedy had more of a partnership, an active partnership where she was involved in what he was doing, as opposed to maybe the old school way of Truman or Eisenhower. And that's one of the reasons why you were so busy. She was more involved. Well, she was more involved in other ways. Uh, She did not like politics either. Uh, Not like President Kennedy did. And she spent more time away from the White House than she did at the White House. They had a property they had leased out in Middleburg, Virginia. We spent a lot of time out there because she she loved to uh, ride horses, and this gave her that opportunity. Riding the various hunts out there, the Piedmont hunt, the Middleburg hunt, whatever the Orange County hunt, and uh, and then we would travel. Summers were up in, on the Cape at Hinesport, uh, Massachusetts. So sometimes winters were down in Palm Beach. Every year we'd go down there for Christmas and go back and stay there for New Year's and then come back for Easter. So uh, it was an interesting time. And between that and uh, to and from New York City on a regular basis, I was uh, well-traveled. What was it like being around those young kids? Well, they were a delight. They were a challenge in their own way. We had uh, there were two children. John was born after the election and before the inauguration on, on November 25th, uh, 1960. Uh, so he was just an infant. Caroline was three years old. And uh, we had three agents assigned to the two of them. And they were very well-mannered. Mrs. Kennedy insisted that they not be given special consideration. She wanted them to grow up like normal kids, which was very difficult. I told her I didn't think that was ever going to be possible because now they were always going to be the children of a president. And they were always going to be looked at that way by the general populace. Uh, but she was insistent that if they fell down, they'd have to get up themselves. We wouldn't help them. That uh, I recall one instance, young John knocked out a tooth playing on a slide. And uh, one of the agents took him in to see the doctor. And just so happened, the president came out of his office about that time. It was on the south grounds of the White House. And wanted to see John. And the other agent that was out there said, well, sorry, here's not, John's not here right now. Uh, he knocked out a tooth and agent uh, Wells turned him into the uh, doctor's office. And the president said, oh, uh, that was a baby tooth, wasn't it? And the agent said, yes, sir, it was. He said, okay, that'll, re- that'll grow back. No problem. And he went back <laughs> to the office. So, I mean, uh, they wanted the children to be as tough as they could be and uh, to grow up just like any other child. Mrs. Kennedy and me is the first book you two wrote together. Uh, and it kind of, if, if I have this correct, Lisa, please tell me if I don't, you originally wrote a book in 2011 called the Kennedy detail JFK's secret service agents break the silence. And that's where you met Clint Hill. That's correct. Yes, I was writing that book. Um, it actually came out in 2010. Um, and um, I interviewed Clint for that book. I wrote it with um, another agent called uh, named Jerry Blaine, who was a longtime family friend of mine. 
And um, so he had wanted to write this book and had been working on it for a long time. And so I kind of came in and we collaborated on that. And, um, and I, when I was getting into it, I said, you know, I, I really would like to talk to somebody who was in Dallas during the assassination because Jerry Blaine had, uh, while he was one of the secret service agents on JFK's detail, he was on the midnight ship shift on that trip to Texas. So he wasn't in Dallas. And, um, so he put me in touch with Clint. Um, but at first Clint did not want to speak with me. He hadn't spoken with anybody about this and it, it took a lot of convincing, didn't it? To get you to talk to me. A great deal of convincing. Yeah. And that um, comes, that comes through in the research that I did that, that Mr. Hill, you just did not want to talk about it. So one of the questions I have written down is please explain to the leaders and legends podcast audience, how potent are Lisa's powers of persuasion? Well, they apparently were very potent because it, <laughs> I, uh, when I first met her, I met her at a hotel in Washington, DC. She and her son had come down to Washington and she had arranged for a, a conference room and we I went in there and I told her I'd give her two hours. And uh, she asked a lot of questions and I gave her what answers I wanted to. And at the end, I said, looked at my watch. I said, your two hours are up. And uh, she said, okay. She said, oh, she said, uh, just in case I have any questions I need to ask about what we've already discussed, would you please give me your phone number? And like a fool, I did. <laughs> and that started telephone calls between she and me. First was like once a week, and then eventually twice a week, then three times a week, then every day, then two times a day. And I mean, it was not ending. And then <laughs> about two weeks before her a deadline for turning in the manuscript for the Kennedy detail, I finally just called her up and said, look, I'll tell you the whole damn story. Just ask any question you want. And so I did. And she was elated that I did that, but she was really angry because now she only had two weeks to get the manuscript done for the, for the publisher. But I would say those phone calls happened over the course of about six months. And, um, and, you know, each time I would notice he would just give me a little bit more information, a little bit more. And then, you know, as you do, when you're talking to someone little personal things come in or he would say, Oh, I can't talk to you at this time because we're doing this or whatever. And I happened to be living in Doha, Qatar at the time. So we had like a 12 hour time difference for these mm -hmm. phone calls, but I could really see um, over the course of the months, um, Clint just slowly um, becoming more open. And I could sense that, he, there was like a burden being released as he was talking about it, uh, all these things, sure. because it wasn't just the assassination. It was, you know, fun times too. He was reliving, um, you know, I would ask him questions about what Mrs. Kennedy was like and, you know, how the secret service did this or that. And I remember him saying to me, are you really interested in this? He just couldn't understand that anybody would find it interesting. Well, 
You know, that's interesting because I saw that in, in an interview I read where you said an ordinary day for you, Clint, is an amazing day for anyone else. And that is so right. I haven't talked to too many, quote unquote, people at at Mr. Hill's level, right? I have. I've been lucky with the podcast to talk about folks who've been in the room for amazing things. But your everyday drudgery, I got to go to work again, Mr. Hill, would be an absolute trip to Disneyland for most of us. Did you get that sense, how lucky you were to be around all these people? Absolutely. When we got to the White House, you walked down the, on the east side there and go down to the, to the west side, you get down to the west wing. Uh, you know, you are extremely fortunate to have this position and to work with the people that I worked with. I had, I worked with some of the finest young men. We didn't have any females in the Secret Service at that time. And I worked with some of the finest young men I'll ever had the privilege to work with. Almost all of us were had been in the military with extreme, a few exceptions. And uh, I think we all had that same attitude that we had such a feeling of respect for the office of the president that we didn't want anything to happen to uh, cause that uh, uh, office to have any disrespect. We just, we really felt it was our obligation to uh, provide for the president as much as we could and make his job as easy as possible because the better arrangements we could make for him to do things, the better it was for him and for the country as a whole. Well, listen, and he's still in touch with, um, you know, the ones, the men that are still alive from that era. They, um, you know, have such a close bond. I think in the last week you've spoken to four agents um, mm. that you worked with at that time that would just call up and, you know, check in on each other, which is really great. Well, Ms. McCubbin's uh, persistence in getting you to uh, speak with her, uh, Clint, makes me feel better about my persistence in trying to get her to speak with me for the Leaders and <laughs> <Yeah>. Legends podcast. <laughs> uh, your first book was... Uh, Mrs. Kennedy and me. Why was that your first book together? Well, I hadn't wanted to write a book, period. And I vowed I never would. I'd been asked by many, many people to help them write books. I'd been requested to write one on my own, but I had just absolutely refused. It got to the point where I had so many requests of that type that I took all my notes, took them out in my patio, lit up my grill and threw them all in there and burned them all up. And that was before I met Lisa. Mm. So by the time we started to write Mrs. Kennedy and me, I had to rely on memory because I didn't have any notes. Did it it would have been you... so much easier if he had had all those notes, <laughs> trust me. Well, I read a book but it that... Was... We, um, you know, that the re you asked why that was the first book. Well, um, after Clint uh, helped Jerry Blaine and I with the Kennedy detail, and then he kind of toured around with us when we went on the book tour, and and he admitted that he was feeling better by being able to talk about it because he had buried these memories and emotions for so long, and it was very difficult at first, extremely emotional for him. But he was he emotionally was better by talking about it. And so when uh, the publisher and I asked him about writing about his four years with Jackie Kennedy, at first, he just did not want to do that. But I said, you know, 
you can make this a tribute to Mrs. Kennedy. Mm. It doesn't have to be a tell-all and you're the author, you get to choose what to put in and what to leave out. And so once he thought about that as making it a tribute, then he thought he would go ahead and do that. Yeah, that was the, that one word that she used uh, kind of tripped it for me that when she said uh, tribute, I finally decided uh, that's what I was going to do. Perfect. What was it like being in the White House? I read two or three books on this, and then obviously there was a movie several years ago. Being in the White House with the Kennedy family during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Very touchy. It was, uh, we knew pretty much what was going on, but not everything, but enough. And we were prepared in any event for, to evacuate, take the family to, uh, if we had time to a relocation site, if not time, uh, relocate down into the bowels of the White House to the shelters. Um, So it was real touchy and uh, at one point, uh, the president was out on a trip. He was going to come and he was going to speak in Chicago. And Mrs. Kennedy and the children were in Middleburg at the place that they had leased. And a call came in from the president. He wanted me to bring Mrs. Kennedy and the children back to the White House. He wanted them there with him. And so we took them back. And then a few days later, uh, she got authorization from him to go back out there. And we went back out to the uh, Middleburg estate, Glenora. And uh, I think it was on a Sunday morning. He came out there in a helicopter. And when he came off that helicopter, he was all smiles. And we knew uh, the situation was over. Uh, there was no longer a threat to the United States by the uh, Soviet government or the Cubans. It was a relief. So it was, I had one instance where I had to uh, explain to Mrs. Kennedy what the plans were. And I didn't even get halfway through the, the telling her about it. And she interrupted me and said, Mr. Hill, excuse me, but this is what I'm going to do. She <laughs> said, if we get word that a mute missile is on its way and we have to relocate to the bomb shelter, I'm going to take Caroline and John, walk out on the South grinds holding hands, and we'll have the same result that any other American would have had. And I just shook my head. I said to myself, I said, well, if that's the way you act, I guess I'll just have to pick you up, throw me over your shoulder, my shoulder, and mm-hmm. into the bomb shelter we'll go. <laughs> was so. Mrs. Kennedy, she clearly was a strong-willed, stoic woman in a, in a lot of ways that we see from from the outside right from the inside is what you're telling me and, and through the book it seemed like she was determined to be a mother to not as you said just a little while ago make her kids live as normally as possible even though we all knew they couldn't but in the in the instances that you had to tell her no or did you ever tell her no how did that go over? Did she understand that it had to be a cer- certain way because of the Secret Service? Yeah, she did understand it. And if you t- had, had to tell her no for something, as long as it was reasonable, she would accept that. <clears throat> you didn't want to be unreasonable with her. She was just too damn smart 
and up to date on everything so that if you were making an unreasonable request, she she knew immediately. She was really an intelligent woman. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, the Crown Plaza Hotel, Grand Hall, and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the law firm of Bose, McKinney, and Evans, and the Bose Public Affairs Group, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guests on this podcast are Clint Hill, former Secret Service agent, and his co-author for many books, and we will put these books on our website and on Facebook so that you can read them. Lisa McCubbin, thank you both for coming on. Thanks for having us. We're glad to be here. The trip to Dallas in November of 1963, planned like every other trip, or was there something different about this presidential trip before it even started? And I'm thinking particularly about this being Lyndon Johnson's home state and him wanting to put on a great welcome. Well, it was uh, different in some respects in that uh, we knew that there was a group of people in uh, specifically in the Dallas area that were very anti-Kennedy. Uh, we knew that uh, the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, Adlai Stevenson, had gone to Dallas about uh, maybe two weeks or three weeks before this trip was going to take place and that he was making a speech or tried to and he was interrupted by hecklers driven off the stage hit with a placard uh, so it was so serious that the the night before our arrival in Dallas we arrived on the 22nd on the night of the 21st November Chief of Police Curry got on the television in Dallas to plead with the people of Dallas to please show respect for President Mrs. Kennedy and Vice President Mrs. Johnson, Governor Mrs. Connell, because he was concerned. But there was no real intelligence to indicate there was anything more than a, uh, a political division uh, go taking place. We didn't have any other really serious intelligence information. And so the, the trip was, was fast, we went in on the 21st, we went to San Antonio and to Houston and then to Fort Worth. So that's three cities in one day. That That's quite a, quite a rapid trip when you consider that each place has to have a speak speaking engagement. One of them had a dinner. And so we were very, very busy. But uh, we didn't uh, have any indication that what happened may have happened going to maybe what was going to happen in a december 2010 interview with bbc today you said quote lee harvey oswald had all the advantages that day we had none and it was a very easy job to accomplish because of the way everything was laid out true which advantages did he have besides perhaps surprise well surprise was one and he took advantage of that was he he fired not while we were coming at him, but while we were going away from him. So if we had fired at us or at the president while we were coming at him, we wouldn't, would have been able to discern exactly where the shots were coming from. But when he 
decided to wait and fire the shots after we had turned the corner and we were going away. That meant we had to find the location of the shooter before we could do anything. And we had to try and get up and cover President and Mrs. Kennedy so that they could be less harmed than they would be. I tried to do that by, after the first shot was fired, I, I was on the left-hand side of the car that was right behind the president's car. It was on the running board of that car. There were four of us on the running boards. I was in the front position on the left side. Mrs. Kennedy was in the left rear of the presidential vehicle. The president was in the right rear. I'd been scanning the area to the left, which was a grassy area. Uh, and uh, there were people there, but there were just a few compared to how it had been as we came down Main Street in Dallas. It was completely packed on Main Street. It was thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of people. But when we got into Dealey Plaza, the area was very sparsely occupied. I didn't notice anything unusual, really. <clears throat> and then all of a sudden I heard an explosive noise over my right shoulder from the rear. So I started to turn to that area to see if I could identify where it came from, what it was. I wasn't sure it was a gunshot. In so doing, my eyes passed over the back of the presidential vehicle that was in front of me. I saw the president grab at his throat like this and start right. to fall. I knew then it was a shot. And so I jumped from my position on the follow-up car and ran toward the presidential car with the intent of getting up on top of the back of it to form a shield or barrier there to protect both President and Mrs. Kennedy. But as I, I, I jumped off the car, there was a motorcycle officer immediately to my left. So I had to get between the motorcycle and the car and both engines were making considerable noise. The agents told me later there was a shot fired while I was running. <clears throat> I never even heard that one. And just before I got to the car, there was another shot fired. At that time, the president was had fallen to his left against Mrs. Kennedy's face, and his head was somewhat down. And so the bullet from that third shot entered the president in the rear of the head and it came, exploded out of the head just above the right ear, just behind it and above it. And um, there was blood and bone fragments and brain matter all over the car, over me, all over Mrs. Kennedy. Because she at that time <coughs> tried to get up in the back of the car so she could grab some of the material that came out of the president's head. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Which she did do. Uh, I got up there and I finally grabbed her put her in the back seat where she was supposed to be seated. When I did that, the president's body fell farther to its left with his head right. in her lap. And his right side of his face was up. I could see his eyes were fixed. I could see the hole in the skull. And there was just no brain matter in that area of the skull at all. So I assumed immediately that it had been a fatal wound. And I turned and gave a thumbs down to the other agents in the follow-up car because they had not had the opportunity to get to the car to help. When they turned to see if they could figure out where the shot was coming from, they turned away from the president's car because they were on the right-hand side. 
they didn't see the president grab his throat and realize he had been hit. By the time they turned back, it was too late for them to do anything. And so I got up on top and I laid there, screamed at the driver to get us to a hospital. And Chief Curry from Dallas got in front of us in a lead car and he led us out to a, a highway right there and then on to Parkland Hospital. Lisa, you co-wrote the book Five Days in November with Agent Hill. How tough was it for you not only to hear this account from a man who was literally yards, then feet, then inches away, but to get Clint to talk about it in a way that was both clinical from a law enforcement perspective and a kind of a ballistics perspective at the same time as telling a very real story that someone about whom he cared greatly had been killed and he's looking at his charge, Mrs. Kennedy, and sees the look on her face. Well, I think that's what I kind of bring to the books is um, pulling out the emotion. Um, You know, most law enforcement people, they're kind of trained to not show emotion and be very stoic and especially secret service agents. And um, Jerry Blaine, when I was working with him, he basically said, no, you know, we we don't have emotions. (laughs) Well, Mm. That's not true. They do. And every time Clint would talk about this, his eyes would well up with tears. So, you know, you could tell it was still affecting him. Um, So with Five Days in November, that was a really hard book to write. Um, We did it pretty quickly. Um, And I always urge people to not get that book as an audio book. You have to, it was meant to be, a hard, to read it in hardcover so that you can see the photographs. There are more than 170 photographs and that's a big part of the book too, because I think it brings it to life. So you get the emotion of Clint telling the story and it's written in the present tense. Um, and that was something we decided in the middle of writing it because as he would tell me these stories, as he would talk about it, it was almost like he would go into a trance in a way and he was putting himself back there and he would speak in the present tense. And so I remember uh, calling up our editor, uh, Simon and Schuster and saying, you know, I think, I think we need to do this in the present tense. And it turned out it's just so compelling because you feel like you're right there with him and it's written as he's going through it and he doesn't know what's going to happen next. So it's written without, the value of hindsight in a way. Um, so you, you have that, that feeling of not knowing what's coming next, even though you do. Um, You're absolutely right about the pictures. The pictures yeah. are terrific. And uh, yeah, it just takes you, takes you back to that time. And it's just heart wrenching. Um, so I think we're so fortunate um, that Clint did decide to share these stories with the world um, because that history would have been lost had he not. And it, he has such a close insider account that that few other agents did just because he was so close to Mrs. Kennedy. One of the things that was brought out in the Warren Commission's findings was the fact that there were no bodyguards stationed on the presidential limousine itself. But there was a specific, very powerful reason for this, Clint. And that reason is? The president had been on a trip to Florida the previous weekend. 
one of the spot stops was in Tampa and the motorcade was 26 miles long. And so rather than have, and it was warm and humid. So rather than have the agents run alongside the presidential car, the advance agent requested that they get up on the back of the car, which there were little platforms there for us. Mm -hmm. We needed to stand there, little handholds on the trunk, and remain there for the 26 miles uh, to intervene in the event that's necessary, rather than run. So about halfway through, the president noticed this, and the crowd had dropped off a little bit, and so he reached forward and tapped the supervisor agent who was in the right front seat on the shoulder and said, Floyd, he said, will you get those Ivy Leagues charlatans, <laughs> Ivy League charlatans off the back of my car, please? So we didn't even know what the hell he meant by Ivy League charlatans, but we knew what he meant by get off the back of this car. And so the word went back, it came back to us, or to, to the agents, and they got off the car. And then at the end of the motorcade, he went to, the president came to the, the supervisor agent and the advance agent and said, look, I'm running for re-election in, six, in 64. If the agents are up there like that and, and uh, appear to be hovering over me, they the people will have a sense that I am separated from them, that there's a barrier between the voting public and myself, and I can't afford that to be the case. So from now on, do not have the agents up in the back of the car, Unless it's an absolute emergency, don't have them that close to me at all, you know. And so that's the word that went out. And uh, when it came to Dallas, that was the word we were going to live by. Now, during the motorcade that day, I had gotten up on the back of the car a number of times coming down Main Street in Dallas because it was so packed with people. And the driver of the presidential car was keeping the car to the left-hand side of the street keeping the president who was in the right rear away from the crowd on the right. But that put Mrs. Kennedy right up next to the crowd on the left. And so I would run forward, crawl up in the back of the car and be as close to her as I could to prevent anybody from reaching out and doing something or sure. throwing something to her. And so, I mean, that worked okay. But by the time we got to the Dealey Plaza area and the crowds had dropped off, there didn't, it wasn't any need for me to be there anymore. So I went back to the follow-up car. So at the time of the incident, I was on the follow car. One of the things when you read about the assassination, and uh, and I'm talking about the history of the assassination, not the conspiracy stuff, or watch some of the documentaries that stand stood out to me, I couldn't believe it when I first heard it, was the shooting of the President of the United States was not a federal crime at that correct. time. At that time, that's correct. And Texas law governed how it was going to be handled from a from a law enforcement enforcement procedure. True. Which almost led to I don't want to hyperbolize and say there was going to be a gun battle, but if you read accounts of that day that the Secret Service, when it was when President Kennedy was pronounced dead, was determined to take the body back to Washington, DC. But Texas law said there must be an autopsy before it's it leaves. Tell us a little bit about that particular conflict, because just it, the notion that it's not a federal crime, I simply couldn't believe it when I read it. Well, we were. This has happened at Parkland Hospital at the emergency room, 
and the president was in trauma room one, and Governor Connolly had been shot also in trauma room two. And after they pronounced the president dead, which that was about one o'clock in the afternoon, the decision was made that they would try would transport the president back. We were transporting back to Washington for the autopsy. So I was requested to get a casket, and I arranged for that, and it was brought. And the nurses in the emergency room were preparing the body to place in the casket when the coroner arrived. And he simply said, what are you guys doing? And we explained, well, we're preparing to leave and go back to Washington, D.C. He said, you can't do that. He said, why not? Because the Texas law says anybody who is a victim of a homicide must have their body autopsy before they can leave the hospital. Well, we said, how long is that going to take? And they, Conrad Corner said, oh, a few hours, maybe a day. And we said, that's just not acceptable. We're going to go anyway. With that, he then said, all right, if you're going to leave, you must have a medical expert travel with the body and remain with it up until the autopsy is performed. I said, that's fine. We have Admiral George Berkeley is here. He is the president's military physician. He can remain with the body at all times. And that's what we did. The nurses prepared the body, placed it in a casket, took the casket out, placed it in the uh, hearse. Uh, Admiral Berkeley went out, got in the back of the hearse with the body and the, in the casket. And he was sitting there beside the casket. Mrs. Kennedy came out to get in. I said to her, I said, we can get in this car right back here, Mrs. Kennedy. And she said, no, I'm going to ride in the back with the president. So I opened the door, helped her get in, and then I climbed in right behind her. So it was a little bit crowded in the back of that hearse. A casket, Admiral Berkeley, Mrs. Kennedy, myself. And we drove, we were taken then to Air Force One, which was at Love Field. And my understanding is the handles had to be broken off the casket because it wouldn't fit in the door? That's correct. We carried it up the stairway to the rear of Air Force One. The engineers had removed some seats to make place for the casket to be located. And then we tried to get it through the door to entrance. It was just slightly too wide because of the handles. So we tore the handles off, got it into the rear of the aircraft and set it down where the engineers had made the arrangements for us to place it. And Mrs. Kennedy sat in that same general area and remained with it during the entire trip. How did you handle your emotions and, and all these frustrations? You're dealing with the coroner and now you have to find a casket Then the casket won't fit in the, in the plane. I mean, just it's one thing after another, after this enormous personal tragedy, is it just a matter of this is where your professionalism goes into hyperdrive as a secret service agent? Yeah, so it does because you can't let your emotions get the best of you. You have to put that aside. There's time for that later. Not now, not now is not the time to, um, mourn, grieve. Now's the time to get your, get the job done. And that was our attitude. It was at the hospital. If I remember correctly, they received a call from president Kennedy's brother, the attorney general, Robert Kennedy. Yes. In the midst of everything, the attorney general had called and he asked for me. So I got on the phone, right? I was on a, on the phone at the time talking to my boss at the white house. And the operator interrupted and said, Mr. Hill, the attorney general wants to talk with you. And so I said, okay, thank you. And I said, yes, Mr. Attorney General, what can I do for you? 
he had, he didn't wasn't real sure what had happened down there. So he said, Clint, he said, what's going on down there? I said, the president's been shot, governor's been shot. We're at Parkland Hospital. They're doing everything they can. <clears throat> and he said, well, how bad is it? Because he didn't realize how serious it was. And I didn't want to tell him that his, his brother was dead. So I said, uh, it's as bad as it can get. And he just hung up the phone. So that's how he really found out that his brother had been killed. Describe to us, please, on the Leaders and Legends podcast, we're with former Secret Service agent Clint Hill and his co-author, Lisa McCubbin, for best-selling books about Agent Hill's time in the Secret Service. It seems that the Air Force One scene situation on the flight back, both on the tarmac in Dallas, Love Field, and the flight back was somewhat chaotic. Is that a fair description, or was it more solemn and stoic? Well, it, it was uh, before we took off, the president, president, Vice President Johnson, before he was sworn in, had contacted Washington to see whether or not he should be sworn in there or to get to Washington. And they had suggested, recommended he get sworn in there. They said that would require a federal judge. We had to find one. We did. And it was a recently appointed female federal judge. They brought her on board. Uh, she swore him in. You'll see pictures of that. If you see pictures five minutes before the swearing in, you'll see that whole compartment has different people in different positions. By the time the swearing in took place, all the politicians had managed to get in close up around President Johnson and Mrs. Kennedy. Uh, all the military leaders had been moved out. Um, so, I mean, it was from that sense, it was a little chaotic, not too bad. Because they wanted to be in the you know, they picture. They really wanted to have that as, you know. Well, you mentioned you mentioned Jack Valenti in that in that famous picture where Johnson's taking the oath. Valenti's like poking poking his head out from behind somebody because he wants to see what's going on, which I guess is you know a reasonable That's reaction work because he ended up very a good position at the White House. Yeah, uh, but, uh, you know that wasn't so bad. And then the flight back, it was really story very quiet the whole flight. The only thing that was going on was the general. <laughs> The, the Army General and the Navy Admiral had a difference of opinion as to where the autopsy, autopsy should take place. The Army General wanted it at Walter Reed Army Hospital. The Navy Admiral wanted it at Bethesda Naval Hospital. <clears throat> and they hadn't really decided, but they forgot one thing. They forgot to ask Mrs. Kennedy what she wanted. Right. She, she made the decision. It's going to be at Bethesda Naval Hospital because Jack was a former Navy officer. That's right. And so that ended this discussion. But up until that point, it was rather nobody knew what was going to take place. If the inclusion of Mrs. Kennedy in the swearing in ceremony caused some bitterness maybe or angst that Johnson insisted that she be there wouldn't go ahead with the oath and you stop me where my history is wrong wouldn't go ahead with the oath 
wanted her there and someone went to go get her, but there was some discussion because they're like, this lady has been through enough. Let her just stay where she is. And Johnson wanted her in that photo. Well, and she felt the need to be in it for the good of the country. And so she did agree to do that. The only thing she didn't agree with, they wanted her to uh, clean up, uh, change clothes if possible, because her pink suit was covered with the president's blood and her legs were covered with blood. Uh, and they preferred that that not be on the photo, but she said, no, I want them to see what they've done. And so uh, she had agreed that she would be in that photo and wanted to be in it, but not under the same conditions that other people had requested. And uh, right before that photo was taken, there was a really touching moment between right. Mrs. Kennedy and Mr. Hill. Tell about well, that. Before, just before the swearing in, I had gone to the forward portion of Air Force One where I had a seat and that was near the radio operator. And pretty soon one of the stewards came forth and said, uh, Clint, Mrs. Kenny wants to talk to you right away. So I went back to where she was seated. And as I approached her, she stood up and she grabbed my hand and she said, oh, Mr. Hill, what's going to happen to you now? Mm. And I said, I'll be okay, Mrs. Kenny, I'll be okay. She was concerned about my reaction to what had happened. She was concerned about the reaction of some of the other agents like Bill Greer, who was driving the car. Uh, but, uh, I mean, it was <clears throat> something I had never expected, and it came right out of the clear blue. And I just told her that I'd be okay, and she accepted that. As, as murderous and disgraceful as Oswald's actions were that day, is it fair to say that Mrs. Kennedy's performance was as perfect as it could have gotten for someone so close to such a, not only a national tragedy, but a personal tragedy. She handled the entire situation from the time that we got to the hospital right up through the burial on the 25th with such poise. And uh, she just, she set an example for everybody else. In, in the uh, ride from beyond Daly Plaza, Daly Plaza to you get to the hospital where, where it's out of the Zabruder film sort of uh, range. Yeah. What was that part of the ride like? Well, we were going very, very fast. I was up on the back. I had wedged myself in up above the back seat. I uh, had on my sunglasses. I turned my head at one point. We were going so fast, they just blew right off my head. Uh, she didn't say anything. She, she initially had said, uh, oh, Jack, what have they done? What have they done? I love you, Jack. And that was about it. Um, and then when we got to the hospital, uh, we were trying to move the president from the car. First, we had to move the governor because he was sitting in the jump seat, which was right in front of President Kennedy. His back, the back of his seat, was right up against President Kennedy's knees. <coughs> so we, <coughs> we couldn't do anything to move the president <coughs> until we moved the governor. And so we did. And then when we were going to move the president, she had a hold of the body and wouldn't let go. And so I pleaded with her. I said, please, Mrs. Kennedy, let us help the president. I got no response whatsoever. So I said it again, nothing. So I'd been with her a little over three years at that time. So I knew her pretty well. 
And I realized she didn't want anybody to see the condition he was in because it was deplorable. It was terrible. Right. So I took off my suit coat and I covered up his head and his upper back. And as soon as I did that, she let go. We lifted him up, put him on a gurney and took him into a trauma room one at the emergency room. And she followed. But uh, she went in and out of the emergency of that trauma room. She stayed within five or six feet of the door of the trauma room at all time until we left the hospital with the body. She, uh, and uh, Mrs. Connolly was near the one that the governor was in. They uh, were both suffering the loss of their spouses. What was your reaction a few days later on national television when Jack Ruby shot Lee Harvey Oswald? Well, I didn't find out about it until after the fact, because at the time that happened, we were in the process of moving the body of President Kennedy from the White House on outside the White House to the caisson, taking it down to the U.S. Capitol to place it in state. And uh, so we didn't find out about uh, Leo Goswell until a little bit later. I was uh, shocked, surprised really didn't understand what exactly had happened. I didn't really find out and, and find out exactly what happened for years until I uh, sat down and talked to uh, a detective from Dallas, Jim Lavelle, yeah. who was uh, the detective handcuffed to Oswald on the day that they transferred him, the day she got, he got shot. And he told me that... Uh, Oswald really never said anything. He kept on saying it was a setup. But that when he was, he, uh, uh, he and he did know Ruby somewhat. Two, a few days later, whenever it was, two days later, I guess it was, he had the same assignment to transport Ruby out of the Dallas Police Department. You're taking him to another place. And in that day, he talked to Ruby and he asked him, he said, what the hell did you do that for, Jack? And he said, you know, he said, Jim, he said, I thought I was going to be a hero. But I really screwed things up, apparently. And Jack said, or Jim said, yeah, you sure as hell screwed things up. We really wanted to interview uh, both Oswald and that men Ruby. Do you have a word or two uh, in the few minutes we have left, but in a word or two to describe all of the conspiracy theories and all the books that have come out about what happened in Dallas how does that affect you personally? Maybe you believe one of them. I'm, I'm not an expert in any of it, obviously, but just in generally the, the, the obsession with the conspiracy theories surviving Dallas, which actually is a, a big part of the movie in the line of fire of which I know you were not only a part, but somewhat based on your life. Well, the conspiracy theories are just that theories. There's no fact involved. Uh, and uh, there's one, I, almost every day you hear a new one. Uh, there's no, none of them that can, are reliable or have any information that is close to being correct. So the biggest mistake of all, I guess, was when Oliver Stone made that movie, JFK, and uh, he did a disservice to this country by having it say the things that it said and the things that she he alleged um i have jim lavelle again jim was a a member of the dallas police department he had retired i guess and 
when Stone was doing the movie, he had been contracted as a consultant. And at one point, Jim told me that he had gone to Stone and said, look, he said, Albert, he said, uh, the things you're doing, they're not actually true. That's not factual. And Albert said, hey, Jim, this is a movie. We can do it any way we want to. We don't have to stick to the facts. And that's exactly the case. You actually just anticipated my next question. My next question is, what do you think of the movie JFK? So I'll skip that one. Lisa, as as the author, as the co-author, as the journalist talking to Clint, as he's relating these stories and these personal memories, can you think of one or two things that surprised you? Um, many, many, but probably the the first thing that astonished me was um, when I was writing my first book called The Kennedy Detail. Um, that none of the agents had ever talked to each other about the assassination. Mm. They, so they went through this horrible tragedy and they buried it inside. There was no counseling for them. There was no time off. They went straight back to work and just had to work harder. All the agents that had been with President Kennedy suddenly we're now protecting president Johnson. So they're just, you know, having to go back to work and work harder. And some of them left the secret service shortly thereafter. Many of them stayed. And in all those years, you know, the anniversary of the assassination would come up and they just never talked about it. They didn't talk about it until we started writing this book in 2010 and discovery channel did a documentary um, where we took Clint and Jerry Blaine and Wynn Lawson and Paul Landis and a couple of others um, back to Dallas. And they were in the sixth floor, now it's called the sixth floor museum, the Texas School Book Depository. And they talked about the assassination together for the first time. And it wasn't that they weren't allowed to or anything like that. They said it was just too damn painful. And a lot of this is the code I would imagine. And Clint mentioned it earlier about the fact that so many of these men had served in the military, probably in combat. And they didn't talk about that much then either. Right. That's true. So, but once they all started talking about it and they realized, wow, you felt the same way I did. They all, even the ones that weren't there in Dallas, um, you know, one of them was one of the children's agents and he was in Washington with Caroline and he heard it over the radio that the president had been shot, but they all had the same sense of failure and a sense of guilt and responsibility that they were unable to, um, to save the president from being assassinated because that was, you know, that was their mission. And that goes back to when Clint said Lee Harvey Oswald had all of the advantages that day. Um, there were so few of them at that time. Their communications were hand signals and, you know, eye contact. Um, they didn't have the kind of uh, manpower that was necessary that, you know, what they have today. Um, it, was, it was just a different time. And you had the president riding in an open top car. I was just getting ready to ask that. Is that a situation where the logic of of the situation 
the logic of of the the route no bubble on the car and and i i encourage everyone listening please go to the henry ford museum which is where the car is not only is it a terrific museum but they've got the car there they actually have the car also too that ronald reagan was trying to get in when he was shot and just look at that car and it transports you no pun intended back to that day back to the film back to the pictures at love field but given given the logic of the advantages Oswald has, there's just probably not enough of that to explain away and dissipate the emotion of the loss. Yeah. I mean, it was something that the entire world kind of went through all at once. Um, It was the first time um, that, that television news stayed on the air constantly. Um, and it was just round the clock news. And so the whole world, well, and at least the United States, everybody was tuned to their television. So they were experiencing what was going on those five days in November, or at least, you know, after the assassination at the same time, um, never would that happen again. You know, now we have so many different media outlets, but this sure. was, there were three television stations and they were all on and everybody experienced the same thing at the same time. And um, it was just this sense of mourning, wasn't it? Very true. Yes. Um, it never had happened before. There were, this was really unusual. No, no commercials strictly. There were just hour after hour after hour of news reports. Um, and that went on for days. And people just couldn't believe that this had happened. And I think that's what started the conspiracy theories is people couldn't wrap their arms around that one person could have done this. One person acting alone. They didn't think it was possible. In fact, history, almost every one of the assassinations is exactly the same way. Even attempts like the attempt to assassinate the uh, congresswoman from Arizona. There's a single individual, uh, not an organization, just hey, one guy. Gabby, Gabby Giffords, is that yeah. right? Mm-hmm. I mean, and this is the case in so many of these things. Well, the two attempted assassinations of Gerald Ford in September of 75, one of them is a Manson cult member, Squeaky Frome, and the other's Sarah Jane Moore. I know. And there's right. no massive organization. It's just a couple people who either want to be famous or don't know, in Squeaky's case, didn't even have a bullet in the chamber. Uh, but or just have their own grudges or their own mental issues. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask you about very quickly is you stayed as Secret Service agent for the Kennedy family, Mrs. Kennedy, Caroline, and JFK Jr. after the assassination. Why was that done, and what was it like to to be with her so soon after this horrific watershed event? It was done at the request of President Johnson. They decided it was necessary to have someone she and the children. And she wanted that too. And they asked her who she wanted. And she listed names. Uh, I happened to be one of the names she listed. Um, and we stayed, I stayed with her and the children until the following November, November 1964 when I returned to the White House and went back in the White House detail, uh, President Johnson was in office. Uh, she uh, 
my, it was really tough, I can tell you this, in December of 63, to be with she and the children down in Palm Beach, Florida for Christmas with her sister and her sister and her husband and her children. And to see them on a daily basis going through this Christmas, which supposed to be a happy holiday season, and it certainly was not. And uh, it really aided me to realize that uh, we had had a responsibility to protect the president and we failed to do so. And it just ate me up. And uh, subsequently, I, I stayed in the Secret Service until 1975. And it finally got to the point where I, they retired me on it because I just couldn't handle it anymore. And you've been amazingly honest and open and courageous uh, about talking the PTSD, the guilt, and, and the substance abuse and everything that you went through and used to cope. Not only with your own awakening as you came out of it, how has your friendship with Lisa made a difference in your life? Oh, it's changed my life completely. I went into a deep depression beginning in 1976. I was retired in 75. I went on a today, uh, 60 minutes in that the fall of 75. And I broke down on camera for the whole world to see. I subsequently went into a deep depression. I stayed in that depression. Like you said, I was, uh, medicating myself with alcohol, I kept uh, the scotch industry in business and the tobacco companies. And in 82, my doctor told me, he said, uh, you've got a choice to make. You either quit doing what you're doing or you're going to be dead in a short period of time. So I did. I just cold turkey, quit drinking and smoking. But still, even though physically I started to get better, I still had this emotional problem regarding the assassination, the feeling of guilt. Why couldn't I have done more? Why couldn't we as an organization have done more? And it just got, really was bad. And then when I started to talk to Lisa, somehow it was like a valve had been turned off. It was released. And uh, I felt so much better. The more I talked about it with her, then we went out and talked to the public the better I felt. And I, I didn't realize that until after it occurred that that would happen. And it did. I had a tough time talking about it. The first few times I would break down, mm. uh, especially talking about seeing John salute his father uh, at, his, at the day of his funeral. Uh, Cause I was close to the children as well as Mrs. Kennedy. And, uh, but over time I realized that, I was getting better. And in subsequent years, I've actually uh, recommended to uh, people who are suffering from deep PTSD, they should talk about what happened in their life. Because it, that's the one thing that will make you feel better and your, your whole system will feel better. And uh, just talk about it, be honest, get it out. It helps. Lisa, how has your friendship, your close friendship with Clint changed your life? Um, well, it's changed my life completely as well. Um, just, uh, well, he's a wonderful person to partner with. Um, and, you know, we've had great success with the books 
Um, I have a, an appreciation for history that I never had before. Um, <laughs> he's just, he's really the most remarkable person I've ever met. And I'm so fortunate to have him in my life. Um, you know, we can be watching anything on television and sure enough, he was probably there or, you know, he can relate <laughs> the story. And um, no matter what it is, or if I have any questions about, you know, anything in politics going on today, I'll say, well, why are they doing that? And he, he knows everything. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's amazing. And he's been through it and his memory is remarkable. Um, he has such great perspective. Um, I urged him to run for president uh, in, in uh, 20, was it 2012? I was half joking. I said, it would be good publicity for our book. Why don't you run for president? And now I, I sure wish he had. Um, because, <laughs> but uh, anyway, he's, no, he's changed my life and uh, we're, we're all better for it. <laughs> One historical event of Clint, you were at, if, if my research is correct, is the, Departure by Richard Nixon off the lawn of the White House after the resignation speech in the next day, August 9th, 1974. What was that like? And given you obviously had met, or I'm assuming you'd met or knew Nixon when you worked for Eisenhower, Nixon loses a close election to Kennedy. They are clearly were pretty strong political enemies. Eight years later, Nixon comes back, wins. And many people think he would have lost the presidential election in 68 if John F. Kennedy's brother, Robert, hadn't been assassinated. And we actually had Indiana's campaign manager for Robert F. Kennedy uh, on the podcast, a fellow named Mike Riley, who just recently uh, was deceased. Uh, Your association with Nixon, to see that event, that seminal event in kind of American political and legal history, could you just not believe the journey of your life going from Eisenhower to Kennedy to Nixon and then the resignation? Well, I really didn't realize the journey of my life until way after I retired from the Secret Service. At that time in 1974, when uh, Nixon resigned and uh, made his final speech to friends and members and staff there at the White House, I was there. I was at that time the assistant director of the Secret Service. My responsibility were all protective activities. And so uh, I had agents with uh, President Nixon and continued with him after he left office. Um, it was a shame that things developed the way they did. Uh, but I've always said that uh, Nixon was his own worst enemy. His uh, attitude had changed such when he came into the presidency in 60 nine when he was sworn in, uh, as opposed to how he had acted as a vice president. He apparently became very vindictive and uh, because of the loss in 60 and then the additional loss and humiliation of losing the governorship right. down in, in California. I mean, he, he, after that, he hated the press. He, he had made out an enemies list. He, he did everything wrong, and it was his own doing, and uh, it was it was really a sad occasion uh, that it came to that. That here, this man that he had really was a vice president. He did a fantastic job, especially in foreign relations over 
in, in the Soviet Union, for example. Uh, you can check that out. He did a remarkable job. But then to come back in 69, take the oath of office, and from that point on, it was all downhill. Well, with the perhaps salt-in-the-wound irony that it was Kennedy's magnificent performance during the Cuban Missile Crisis that so rallied the country around the Democratic Party and boosted the candidacy of Pat Brown, who was Nixon's opponent in that 62 gubernatorial contest. We talked a little bit, we talked a lot about, this is my last question, a lot about Mrs. Kennedy and your relationship and her role as first lady and how she changed the office. But Lisa has written a book about another first lady who had as much courage as anyone who's ever sat in that White House, and that was Betty Ford. She was honest about her health. She was honest about her addictions. Clearly, she and Gerald Ford were a, a phenomenal, unbelievable love story. Lisa, you wrote a book about Betty Ford, came out in 2018. Just please take a minute or two. What was it like to write about her, and what are your impressions of Betty Ford? And maybe you too, Clint, because you knew her as well. Well, she was a remarkable woman. Um, you know, she was thrust into that role. She didn't want it. Um, her husband didn't want to be president. Um, and, you know, she went oh, in the span of something like nine months being um, a congressman's wife, a little known congressman's wife, um, thinking that they were going to retire and go back to Michigan. So in the span of nine months, then all of a sudden she's first lady and she's in the White House. And um, she, this is not what she wanted to do. Um, and then six weeks after becoming first lady, she finds out she has breast cancer and she shared that with the world and changed women's health care forever. That's right. Just by being open about that. Um, she, I wish I had known her. I think uh, we would have been good buddies. Um, she just seemed like she had a great sense of humor. I got to know her daughter, Susan Ford Bales, very well. Um, Susan and I have become close friends from writing this book. She was very, Susan was very generous with sharing memories of her mother um, and what that time period was like. So um, that was, you know, a fantastic experience as well. Just, you know, it, it was it was very different than working with Clint because um, because Betty Ford died in 2011. And so I didn't have the chance to know her and talk to her personally. And so, you know, trying to tell her story through people who knew her is very different than being right there with the person. Um, but it was a great experience. And so it was the first comprehensive biography of Betty Ford and I'm, I'm really proud of it. And um, it's a very inspirational story. So I do recommend it as well. <laughs> well, we're going to make sure people know about it. Clint, you knew first lady Betty Ford, would she have liked to hang out with uh, Miss Lisa? Oh yes. She's, a, <laughs> she was a fantastic female woman. Just a great gal. Uh, different from almost anybody else that had ever been there's first lady. Tough as nails. Uh, do exactly what she wanted. When they asked her, <clears throat> just setting up the White House for she and the president and the family to move in, they asked her which of these bedrooms she wanted because the in, in the past, the first lady had always had her own separate bedroom. She said, no, no. President and I are going to sleep together in that room. <laughs> you know, 
And they were all kind of shocked. Yeah, it was like a scandal that they were going to sleep together in the same bed. <laughs> like Laura and Rob Petrie, they were supposed to be. In yeah, exactly. Beds. I mean, she, she was just one of a kind. She was really a great person. And that was two shocking transfers of power within 11 years of each other. Assassination in 63, resignation in August of 74. And the country handled, and the families who came in, the Fords were an amazing family. And, yeah. and it's clear that the, the Johnsons and Lyndon Johnson, to your point about uh, still being part of the detail for the Kennedy family, went out of his way to treat Mrs. Kennedy with deference and respect and care. True. And, uh, you know, like uh, President Ford, he was the right man for the job at that time to heal the country's wounds because there were severe wounds within the country. And. He did a, a remarkable job. Which, if he hadn't, if he hadn't uh, given President Nixon the, the benefit of the doubt that later on and pardoned, pardoned him, why I think he would have won the election in 76. In which we should acknowledge that uh, incoming president, uh, Jimmy Carter, in his inaugural address in 1977, made this beautifully classy statement about thanking Gerald Ford for all he had done to heal the United States. You have been listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, the Crown Plaza Hotel, Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the law firm of Bose, McKinney and Evans and the Bose Public Affairs Group, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn and... McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guests have been former Secret Service agent Clint Hill and his co-author and author in her own right, Lisa McCubbin. They have actually given me uh, more time than I thought they would, and I'm very grateful and apologetic for keeping you on. I got through about 40% of my questions, but that <laughs> is, there are no words for me as as an American who served in the military and a student of history to be able to have a conversation with the both of you. You've been incredibly gracious with your time. I'm unbelievably honored and I cannot thank you enough. Well, we thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your the service. great people of Indiana. We were fortunate enough to be out at the Indianapolis 500 with the Oysters. Last year we were at the Indy 500. And the Indiana State Police really took care of us. And what was the name? Do you know the name of the name of um, Patrick Edders. He was personally assigned to us. And we had our own bodyguard. <laughs> well, I mean, he just made sure we could get around and do the things we needed to do. It was amazing. What was that like, Clint, to have someone making sure things go right for you? I began to appreciate much how much. <laughs> I loved it. I would. I would like to uh, have my own personal well i do have my own personal secret service agent but um, <laughs> patrick patrick edder was fantastic shout out to him oh yeah definitely i will pass that along to uh the governor of indiana who is a huge history buff and i'll make sure he gets this podcast and i'll also pass that along to mark miles who's ceo of the indianapolis 500 and has been on my podcast on the leaders and legends podcast as well i'll make sure they both know if you right. want to we met the governor as well and he was he was wonderful very, yeah very nice and a veteran of the united states navy yes very good thank you both very much for coming on the podcast all right thank, thank you. you thank you very much for listening to leaders and legends brought to you by veteran strategies incorporated 
you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Thank you.